necessary for our survival and our sanity. And I have to say that loving kindness practice is such a big part of my practice in these subtle ways now. And it's the lens through which I, as best I can, try to see the teachings, my teaching, practice others. And I don't always succeed. And it's not about pass or fail. Um, I really believe that there's this whole spectrum of where we can land on this practice at any given moment. At the same time, I do believe, as much as there's that, that phrase, love is the answer, I think metta can be an answer for a lot of things. However, it's mostly part of a path. So just because it's not a place where you arrive to and then you move on, as I was alluding to, but it is something that can stay with you and can take many shapes and many forms throughout your life of practice. In the opening, Dara uh, used the word Brahmavahara, and just in case you're not aware of what Brahmavahara means, divine abodes is how it's often translated. And it refers to a lot of times as these four heart qualities that exist in practice or in Vipassana teachings. And so there's loving kindness, the one that I'm talking about right now, or metta, karuna, which is compassion. Mudita, sympathetic joy. I like the um, wording from Martine Batchelor, altruistic joy. And then Upeka, Mudita, uh, sorry, Upeka equanimity. And I sometimes say that gratitude, forgiveness, and generosity are like honorary Brahmaviharas or heart qualities, not official, but honorary ones. And so loving kindness or metta is the first of these four. And these qualities are considered boundless, that they're limitless. And metta is the Pali word to describe the word that I've been using already, which is loving kindness. But for you, you might prefer benevolence, friendliness, goodwill, amity, active interest, perhaps. But it all points to this unconditional well-wishing, well this open-hearted nurturing of ourselves and others, just as we are. And this quality comes alive naturally from the heart and mind that are at ease. And yet, I think of in this moment um, a snow globe or a snow globe image that I, I like to use a lot. And so let's say in our day-to-day -day lives, life is like a snow globe where things are agitated and shaken up. And it's not because anything challenging is happening. It's just because there's a lot of movement or distraction. And so it could look like in this little snow globe, almost like it's a blizzard or something like that. And when we slow down for our regular daily practice, or moments of mindfulness throughout our, our lives or a retreat like this, what we're doing is we're setting that snow globe down for a certain amount of time. And then depending on our social location or what's inherited in our bodies, whether it's transgenerational trauma or maybe the other spectrum, we live a fairly trauma-free life, that'll affect how much the snow, the flakes in the snow globe will settle. And so I say this because all of the snowflakes settling might seem pleasant, but it's not necessarily the goal. 
and it's not accessible for all of us. And so just in case that is this, this goal of yours of like, must be loving and kind, must have a steady mind or something like that. Um, we're moving in that direction. We're trying to slow down enough so that the snowflakes can begin to settle. And then we begin to start seeing between them. And then what we begin to see with the slowing down is that there are thoughts and opinions and those are the snowflakes. <clears throat> and these can show up as these false beliefs or inherited cultural norms or whatnot. Um, and then the spaces between the snowflakes as well. And for me, it's in those spaces where I can see that my natural essence is one that already embodies these qualities that I named, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. And so I, I say all of this because I've certainly have been guilty of this, where I've come to practice and with this consumerist mentality of just like, oh, got to do the next thing and then I'll have it somehow. So this consumerist or even colonial mentality in regards to practice, as opposed to slowing down enough to see that it's already there. Loving kindness or metta, and actually before I continue, if loving kindness, those are the words that re really resonate with me. However, if for you, for whatever reason, when you hear loving kindness and it just brings up resistance or a wall, that's fine. And you might choose a different word that will help open up the heart or soften the heart in this direction. So again, we're moving in this direction. We're not just trying to say, because the Olympics are on, so I have long jump in my head. So it's not like we're just doing this running start and then jumping and then suddenly landing at, at metta, the loving kindness. So choose whatever word might resonate for you. And so according to the uh, Pali commentaries, and Pali is the language in which the Buddhist teachings were written in, the Buddha originally gave this teaching of metta to his uh, community of practitioners when they were practicing in a forest and they were being harassed by tree spirits because the monks, the, the tree spirits didn't want them there, the monks. And so after doing loving kindness in the forest, it's said that these tree spirits were so impacted by the power of metta that they allowed the monks to stay for the duration of the rainy season. And the rainy season is approximately three months long. And so it can be considered an antidote or um, a medicine for fear and anger. And although we may not be practicing in forests, or we may, by choice. Um, but although we may not be practicing in forests right now, there can still be a really valid fear in our lives. It could be something personal, like a loved one's health is deteriorating, or our own like life circumstances are unknown. And so there's an dis-ease with that and fear. Or it could be and I'm using air quotes right now if you're not looking. So it could be simply um, the backdrop of this climate crisis or the unnecessary harm and murders of Black, Indigenous, and communities of color. 
It could be political instability wherever you are or wherever your ancestors are from. That can still impact you regardless of where you might live. And it might not even be political instability, just simply your, the political situation in your country. And of course, this is all still going on. And the reason why we're meeting online is because we're still going through this global pandemic. And that perhaps you've noticed in yourself, and I have certainly done this, where there's in the last few months, there's certainly been this roller coaster in regards to the pandemic of excitement at this idea of it being over, but then this apprehension and anxiety of how to be in, in uh, person again. And then on top of it, all of these, all the news headlines of different variants and whatnot. And so these are not easy times and I'm positive I've forgotten other things like, um, well, climate crisis, just the fires that are going on for so much of the West Coast that a lot of you might be seeing out of your window right now, whether it's the smoke or the distant fires themselves. So there's a lot going on in our lives and in our world. And just again, spontaneously, I think of a dear friend and colleague, Kyra Jewell. Some of you may know her. She's a teacher as well. She's coming out with a book or it's out already, something like that. It's like on the brink of arrival into our worlds. And, um, and she's very much a, a climate activist as well. And so her, the title of her book was, or is, We Were Made for These Times. And so I just, I just really love that because as, as daunting and as fearful and as scary as it may seem, certainly at least with, for me with this practice at my back, millions of practitioners before me, thousands of years, I do feel like we were made for these times. And so all of these things that I named were enough to shake up the snow globe. If you arrived here looking for some peace and a break from being reminded of our reality, apologies. And to notice as well, just the stirrings of the heart and mind. And then to remind you that we're here to slow down. And in the slowing down, we're trying to see what is possible, basically, outside of this fear. From experience with practicing metta, for me, it's the how we practice it is the key. I've shared this story before that some of you have heard where I was super desperate when I first started, started practicing metta. As the kids say, I was really thirsty when it came to this practice um, because I was living with such self-hatred and self-judgment for so long. And it was so painful that once I knew this practice existed and the promises that it had, I totally clung to it. And it was like, may I be happy? Oh my God, I'm not happy. May I be free? It was just like really intense. I love and trust this practice so much that thankfully, despite my clinging, the practice was still working. And yet, if I could offer you something, save yourself a couple years and don't cling to the practice of metta. However, allow it to be a support. 
Some of us might come to practice and think the goal is to have an open heart. Um, and that for, for various reasons, we may have been closed for so long that suddenly when we touch the open heart, we're like, yes, this, this is where I want to spend a lot of time. And the other encouragement is to honor what is naturally arising in through the lens of loving kindness. Um, I believe it's the in the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha says, when, um, when your mind is gathered, know that the mind is gathered. When the mind is scattered, know that the mind is scattered. And so if we paraphrase that in relation to this practice and to use heart instead, it's to know when the heart is open and to know when the heart is closed. And when the heart is closed, can we support it? And so if you're not looking at the screen, I'm just demonstrating with my hands right now. And um, I'm, I, I came across this visual in a, a trauma-sensitive mindfulness course with David Chelvin, but I believe it comes from somewhere else, but I'm not sure where it wasn't credited. But if the heart is closed, and so right now I'm holding my fist uh, closed, we're not trying to use this practice to pry it open before it's ready. There's another quote um, coming to mind spontaneously. I'm not sure who said it, but it's something along the lines of, we can't open a flower with a hammer. Instead, what we want to do with this practice is with our other hand, support it, to create this field of loving kindness, of friendliness, of be benevolence, so that eventually the heart that is closed will begin to open on its own time regardless of our schedule or agenda. And I like to think that both are necessary. My heart opens when it's energized and it's looking to connect. My heart closes when I need to resource. And so I resource often by being alone or being in nature. It can also close when I need to protect myself. And so just acknowledging that the heart sometimes is open, the heart sometimes is closed. And then from there, can we act as wisely as possible or choose as wisely as possible? I mentioned how um, metta was used as an antidote for fear. Sometimes I hear as well that some folks are resistant to practicing loving kindness because the fear is that it'll make us weak or too nice and we'll lose this edge that we need to keep us safe or to keep us engaged in our work. So for anyone who might be um, activists, for example. Um, but just to be reminded that love is also strong. If anything, I would say it's stronger and harder to be loving than it is to be angry and hostile. And perhaps it's for this reason that love doesn't make the news as often as the other characteristics do, unfortunately. As another um, friend and colleague and teacher, Kanda Mason says, when we look at the people we really honor the most as a whole, as a collective, globally, it's those who have loved in indiscriminately, who have the biggest hearts and who are generous with their love, like Nelson Mandela, Dr. King, Alice Walker, Mahatma Gandhi. 
And so love is also strong. For me, my loving kindness practice is really supportive as I continue to explore my relationship to anger. And it's years going, this exploration, and may not ever end, and that's fine. And it's really rooted in having been given messages as a, as a young child that good girls don't get angry. And that I internalized that for decades, even though it was repeated often in my first 10 years of life. So, but that followed me for decades. And then I swing because I don't know yet now I, I th I'm better, but before I would just let my anger kind of be wrathful and go uncontrollable, uncontroll uncontrollable, because I was allowing it to come forward, which was new to me. However, during that time, I noticed that my anger is really a, a side effect of hurt. And but when my anger was activated and flared up, it just wanted others to hurt. And then that wanting to hurt others, if it went unchecked long enough, it can turn into hatred, or I can see how it can turn into hatred. And then the way that I've seen hatred come alive in my mind is that it will dehumanize those who are the target of my hatred in order to fuel this hatred and anger. Elisa Garza, founder of the BLM movement, says, for us, BLM is really a rehumanization project. It's a way for us to love each other again, to love ourselves and to project that love into the world so that we can transform it. And so Metta provides this container to hold the anger, not because we're, we wanna change it or mute our anger, but so that we could allow the, the movement of anger wanting to hurt others to move through. And then with what's left, the lessons of the anger, say, telling me that, some, that a boundary was violated, um, from there I can respond. And again, that is because loving kindness is the, the container for it. Bell Hooks from her book, All About Love, New Visions. And I like to think that even though Bell Hooks wasn't necessarily a Dharma teacher, a Dhamma teacher, in that book in particular, she's talking about metta. She's writing all about metta. And so she says, being loving does not mean we'll not be betrayed. Love helps us face betrayal without losing heart. And it renews our spirit so we can love again. The way that um, I want to give us some time to practice and just to name for those who may not be familiar, a way that loving kindness practice is traditionally taught and practiced is that we have about three or four phrases and we send them or share these wishes of loving kindness, starting with ourselves and then categories of people. And there's five in total, there's ourselves, a benefactor, a neutral person, someone we may not know well or have any uh, positive or negative feelings toward, um, a difficult person, and then all beings. However, I want us 
to practice loving kindness, but then to keep with the theme of embodiment. It'll be, as I guide, it'll be slightly different. We won't get to all the categories. Maybe we'll get to more than one. I'm not sure. We'll see how it unfolds. But the reason being is because for me, rushing in my daily life and in my practice, say with these phrases, prohibits me from being embodied and from feeling. And so doing this more slowly, and I like to leave space between the phrases, a lot of space, um, allows me some time to receive the words, to notice how they're landing, and then I can move on to the next phrase. And so it's with in that sense that I'll share. However, thinking again of Dara's invitation of rest and ease as we move into this weekend retreat together, I'll share phrases directed toward you. And all you have to do is receive them. Because many of us are caretakers in different ways, whether formal caretakers or caregivers or informal holders of space. And so sometimes when we come into our practice of loving kindness, it's very possible that we are tired. We're just like, oh, now I have to send this all out to other people. And so right now, what I'd love for you to do is simply receive so that there's no work for you to do. And I sometimes practice in this way when I am feeling burnt out and I might think of someone who I care about or I know cares about me or a celestial being or sometimes for me it's Kuan Yin, the goddess of compassion. I imagine them standing before me and sharing the phrases with me. So in that way, I'll offer up phrases and then you can treat it kind of like warm sun or, or drizzle. It's just lightly falling on you. Not all the all the wishes, the, the phrases will, will land because maybe the mind will wander and that's fine. Just whichever ones land, allow them to land. And in the space between phrases, just tune in. What is happening in the body? How is the body receiving these words? And we're not looking for what is pleasant. There's no right way to do this right or wrong way. We're just trying to tune into what is true for us right now. So it's possible that there's resistance, like I don't like this practice or, or angers arising or boredom, whatever it might be. And all of that is, is welcome. And you might say, oh, hey, anger, I'll give you your space. Or hey, boredom, I'll give you your space. And you're all good. You're welcome here. And even that, that's an expression of loving kindness. And so that's holding it with that second hand, basically. So we'll do about um, 15, 20 minutes of practice right now. And since loving kindness is the theme, I encourage you to take a posture that is an expression of the loving kindness you have or you hope to have. And what that could mean for you is that maybe your back is supported. If you're kind of wondering if you should go grab that blanket, go grab it so you have it. If you have something soft or furry like socks or a pet that you wanna have nearby, beckon them over 
If you're lying down, that's fine. However, if you feel like you might fall asleep, you can go into robot arms so that your elbow is bent by your sides and your fingertips will point up towards the ceiling. And so the energy it takes to hold your arms in that posture can keep you awake. Or if you fall asleep, the hand falls and then that'll wake you up. And as you settle, do whatever you need to give your body a little bit more grounding. That might be looking around the room, noticing where windows and exits are. Could be taking a few full breaths and letting them out with big exhales or audible sighs. If you're standing, you may lean against the wall or place your hands on the back of a chair for balance support. Invite your body to relax. You can do that by noticing the parts that are tense and softening them or using words like, may this body relax. May I relax. And then receiving the following wishes of loving kindness, of metta. May you be happy and healthy. And in the space between phrases, just tuning into the body and how you're receiving these words. There's no right or wrong. May you be safe.
May you be guided by love. May you live with ease. It's possible that these phrases might not resonate completely given some of your life circumstances. So I like to add as much as possible to give it a little bit more breathing room so that however my life is right now, there's room for it in, the, in these phrases. May you be as happy and healthy as possible. May you be as safe as possible. May you be guided by love as much as possible.
May I live with ease as much as possible. May I be happy or may you be happy and healthy. safe as much as possible. May you be guided by love. May you know moments of ease.
Let the phrases fade away. And tune into what is present in the body, in the heart. All of it is welcome. holding it as you would one hand in the palm of the other. Right. So before we go, just a few more words. What is next up on the schedule is um, some time for a meal, rest, and if you want to continue practicing, you can. Um, just a note on silence. So I think sometimes I've certainly have tried not to use silent meditation retreat as I describe what I do or um, in titles of retreats and whatnot, because many populations of which we may belong or many of us may belong have been silenced for, for centuries. 
And, um, and that could bring up a lot for some of us. And so, and, and really what we're trying to, what we mean when we use the word silence is noble silence. It's how can we not create opportunities to speak or communicate so that we can give ourselves this precious gift of turning inward. So setting that snow globe down basically. Um, and so all this to say is as best you can hold silence. However, we all have different circumstances given that we're practicing in our homes or whatnot. And, and so uh, you may live with others and some of them may not understand exactly what you're doing this weekend. And so you might not engage and have full-blown conversations with them, but you might at, respond to them if they say, so how is it so far or something like that, but keeping it light. Um, it is tricky because we're also on, online. And so the we're not actually renouncing technology, we're using technology in a different way. And so it might also be that the habit to check something on your phone or whatnot, after a Zoom meeting might be strong because you might do that five days a week, 18 months or something like that. However, right now, as best you can, can you, can you check that urge? Can you see it and not feed it? However, if some of you are waiting for something important, maybe just look to see if you got that call, that message, and then after you renounce your device or you put it away. Um, so this is, I can't stress it enough, this is a weekend retreat, and at some parts it might feel long for you, but it is really short, it'll fly by. Um, and so this is such a precious gift you've given yourself. And so to, to honor it as much as you can, and I sometimes think of it as um, we're holding this cushion with a precious jewel on it, and we want to um, uh, take care of that jewel. And the jewel being your practice. Um, we're, we're back here at 2 p.m. However, I believe listed on the schedule, it's, it says that it's optional. I will be holding the space at 2 p.m. and I might offer some light guidance um, just because after lunch or after meals, that, that practice is like the head knocking practice where we're falling asleep. And so I might just provide a little bit of guidance so that you have opportunity to wake up a little bit um, and then and then we'll continue with the rest of the schedule. So, so if you have it in you, please return at 2 p.m. Um, oh, and the last thing is, as you might choose to go outdoors and do some walking practice or um, seated on a park bench practice, and if you're doing it with eyes open, just notice your mind, be in the body, as well as see the mind if you see people walking by that you don't know, notice how the mind has a tendency to put labels on certain people and might label some people as good, bad, safe, not safe, or something like that. And then if you can, to switch out the lens for loving kindness lens. And it doesn't mean like you love them, but you're simply open to their humanity as opposed to just applying this label on them. And so that is one way that I try to work with loving kindness um, as I go through, well, what was airports, and that'll come back again, but just in, in these public spaces, um, because it's, it, it helps 
create this habit of not quickly label somebody so that when my heart is um, is closed and I'm maybe in protection mode, there is an opportunity for me to perceive with a wider lens than say one of um, self-preservation or protection. So just offering that as a, as a possibility. So bon appétit or rest well. And I'll see you back here in about 90 minutes. And another thing is my mistake, Bell Hooks is a Thich Nhat Hanh practitioner. So um, thank you com loving community for letting me know that she's a practitioner. So, so just wanted to clarify that. All right, thank you friends. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.